Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hey, this is Rigor, and you're listening to The East Meets the West with my co-host, Patsy the Angry Nerd. Today, we're going to cover the Shaw Brothers film Shaolin Daredevils, a.k.a. The Daredevils, from 1979, another Chang Che-directed film which once again unites all of the Venom mob. And, secondly, we're going to cover the spaghetti western Boot Hill, the third in the trilogy directed by Giuseppe Colizzi and starring Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer, who reprise their roles as Cat and Hutch. So how's it going today, Pat? Uh, pretty well, you know. It's a cold, cold day, and you know things were nice last week. It was, you know, in the 70s, and now it's in the teens, and I don't like it. But uh, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, that was just a tease with the being in the 70s, and now it's like it's just so rude how cold it is. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. So okay, first up we have Shaolin Daredevils. intends to kill you. Huh? Your father be killed? He was a general with lots of men. I told him to fight the bandits. He ignored me. I have no choice. I must get rid of Some assassin tried to get General Han. This killer, did he succeed? All that he got was a body full of bullets. Because he failed to get revenge. Like last episode, here's a little history lesson about China to give some background on the film. Although Sun Yat-sen was the face of the Republic of China after the fall of the Qing Dynasty, it seemed that powerful military man Yuan Shikai held the true power. In fact, he forced Sun Yat-sen out of the presidency. But when Yuan died in 1916, China fell into an era of warlordism. The country split into regions controlled by various power-hungry militias. One of the major forces to be reckoned with throughout the era was the Beiyang Army, a formidable Western-style army conscripted during the Qing Dynasty that was involved in a Chinese political tug-of-war. 
In this film, powerful bandit Han Pei Chang, played by Wang Li, instigates a military coup and kills Yan Daying's Lo Meng, his father and his family. He then becomes an evil warlord. Distraught, angry, and bubbling with vengeful angst, Yang tries to talk four friends, Liang Guo Ren, played by Philip Kwok, Fu Guan Yi, played by Lu Feng, Chen Feng, played by Chiang Sheng, and Xin Zhang played by Sun Qian, into helping him take revenge against Han. When they all try to talk him out of what is clearly a suicide mission, Yang's thirst for vengeance just seems to be kind of subdued, but only because he realized he was asking too much of his friends. So one night, Yang goes to Han's house and tries to take care of things on his own, but he fails and is killed. So it does seem like they enjoy killing Lo Meng early on in these films. Awed by their friend's spirit, the four friends devise a plan to go after Han. Liang and Chen act like street performers looking for work. They get invited to give a performance for Han at his home. Fu masquerades as the son of a field marshal of the Combined Army, which is also the Beiyang Army, with Xin as his second-in-command. Xin tells Han that Fu is planning an uprising, and the hook goes deeper when Fu says he will gladly give Han machine guns if he can rely on Han's allegiance to help his father, the field marshal, take over the region. Han happily agrees, and they plan to meet at a large warehouse to finalize the deal. As is typical of a Chang Che movie, once again, we have, um, we're featuring the latest young batch of martial arts actors, which are still the Venom mob, and all four of our heroes eventually show up at the warehouse for the final 15 minutes of a straight fight. So, Patsy, first impressions. I loved the way that, you know, they incorporated... A lot of the fun stuff that we've come to expect from these films, starting with somebody getting grievously injured, but living just long enough to give important exposition, which we saw at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. oh, I was shot 40 times. Well, we should have shot you 45 times because that's what it's going to take. Because <laughs> like, he didn't seem to be in, in all that much discomfort as he was... Uh, you know, taking the stuff, it's like, oh, take father's stuff and, and run away and everything will be fine. And then, like, yeah. a bunch more guys show up. And then they kind of parody that at the end when what's-his-name gets shot and he just kind of, like, turns around and then just falls over. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, he's going to start fighting. <laughs> oh, no, he's not. He just fell down. Right. Uh, we also got to see a flag fight, like, you know, somebody incorporating a flag, yep. which we have determined is the deadliest weapon. Right. <laughs> and... The thing that I really like about this, and I've kind of talked about this a little bit, you know, as we've progressed through some of these films, that, you know, these guys are naturally acrobatic and athletic, and we really, really get to see the extent of their acrobatics in this film. I think my favorite thing might have been when, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but he's walking in the rings upside down because they threw all the rings across. Oh, that was Phil Kwok. Yeah, and he's just, like, walking in the rings upside down. Oh, so cool. <laughs> yeah. And the, the fighting style that they incorporated. And again, like every time they use a different, like, you know, different techniques. Uh, like obviously you'll see some overlap because, you know, it's hard to become a master of a specific, you know, discipline, you know, in between filming uh, different movies. But it was so good seeing it. It reminded me a lot of Jackie Chan, like that warehouse fight might be my favorite scene from any of the Venom films. Yeah. It, it, their, their skill is so amazing. Like, even that one scene where they're just putting on a performance, but it was um, Sun Chen and Philip Kwok, and, you know, they've got in this position where they're each holding the other's feet so that they can roll around like a like a wheel, and they're going up and over the table and under the table. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just crazy. Oh, yeah, that was great. And the, uh, 
when the, you got all three of them, you know, with the chair and like they kept taking turns, like sitting down and like sitting on each other and like rolling out of the yeah. chair, rolling into the chair. Oh, it's so cool. It's like you love to see these acrobatics <laughs> and it's it's so well choreographed and they execute it like flawlessly. Like even the Russian judge would give them a 10. Like that was so good. Right. So we, we, I think we mentioned last episode, we had a little difficulty getting this film or getting the proper version of this film. And um, thanks to superfan Marsha Bonforti, we got a DVD of it online. And um, I liked how the film was sort of, it felt lean. It wasn't overly complicated. And the story could easily have gotten into this complex tale of, you know, people trying to put one over on the other. And they didn't do that. They just kept it kind of basic. It was easy to follow. And then you got to really just enjoy like you said, the acrobatics and, and the fighting. Yeah, like there was definitely some, uh, you know, some some uh, plot intrigue, a lot of, uh, you know, but it, like you said, like there could have been a lot of back and forth, like with the uh, the bald guy there. Like he seemed like he was kind yeah. of playing both sides, but he also seemed like he was too dumb to be playing both sides. Uh, I think he was just, <laughs> he was just like, oh, I'm just going along with whatever anybody tells me. And, I mean, they pulled it off really well. It's like, yes, I'm a, I'm an arms dealer. I can get you all the guns you need. And, like, look how great I am. And yeah. Definitely uh, heavily influenced by Batman, what with all the uh, grappling hooks involved. <laughs> His son Chan's character just has a rope wrapped around his waist with a grappling hook just in case he needs it. Yeah. <laughs> and they use it a lot. Right. Like, it's it wasn't just, like, a one-time thing. Like, they used it a bunch, and they use it for a lot of different things. Like, you know, the jump rope, the... Uh, you know, the grappling hook, yeah. you know, the rappelling from one building to another to escape at the end. Like, yeah, it's unbelievable how, how much they used that. And the, the hook was kind of tiny, too, and the rope seemed kind of thin. Yeah, and that hook at the end of it wasn't overly impressive. I'm like, what are you going to do with that? Like, catch a fish? Like, come on. Like, that's going to support your weight? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. This movie had some alternate titles. It went by other titles such as Magnificent Acrobats, Daredevils of Kung Fu, The Kings of Kung Fu, The Daredevils, and Venom Warriors. And I guess the original Chinese title translates to Street Performers Suicide Team. But what's really interesting is that we kind of got it as Shaolin Daredevils, and there's no actual Shaolin of anything in this movie. <laughs> it's just a, like a marketing buzzword. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like something that American audiences would automatically attribute, like, oh, it has Shaolin, so they must be, you know, ninjas or whatever. Like, that's that's what the uh, the audience was, would take away from that, not really understanding the, the subtleties and the differences between different disciplines. You know, like, oh, it has Shaolin. You know, like, if you would yeah. put, like, ninja daredevils, it would have achieved the same thing. You know, or kung right. fu daredevils, <laughs> you would have gotten the same thing. But Shaolin makes it seem, I don't know, classier like a higher end, like, yeah. you know, like, oh, Kung Fu, like, all right, it, it'll be, you know, a decent film. But like Shaolin, ooh, that's higher and almost like an art house type thing. Right. Yeah, that's true. So, um, Patsy, for our new listeners, can you give a quick recap of who exactly the Venom mob are? Yes. So The Five Deadly Venoms from 1978 was a film that uh, became a cult classic in the West. And the five principal actors, uh, Wei Bai, Kuo Chui also known as Philip Kwok, Lo Meng, Lu Feng, and Sun Chang began, became known as the Five Venoms or the Venom Mob. However, because uh, Chang Sheng was, for all intents and purposes, the sixth Venom in that film, uh, he was still labeled as one of the Five Venoms. So films that starred any combination of these actors 
Western distributors often would just call them, you know, a five Venom film or a Venom mob film. The Venom mentality also caught on in Hong Kong. And even today, Chinese distributors will still call these films and uh, call films with these actors Five Venoms films. The irony is that only one of the real, quote-unquote, real Five Venoms, Wei Bai, uh, rarely appeared with the other Five Venom actors, and instead Chang usually made up the quintet. Uh, when Chang was in uh, those films in Taiwan, uh, their movies were called Five Weapons Guy films, not Five Venom movies, which makes sense because they're always using different types of weapons, different styles, like we talked about a little while ago. Flags were a weapon in a few of these films, uh, and that's not something you generally <laughs> uh, would expect. But, you know, a lot of poles, a lot of uh, hooked swords, knives. These films generally had long, intricately choreographed fights that featured uh, a lot of weapon and a lot of acrobatic fight moves, which definitely make them very appealing. And as you watch them, uh, as we have, you know, because this is, I don't watch trailers for these. I just go into them cold, not knowing what they're about, just watching them and seeing what happens. You get a greater appreciation for it because you can see the chemistry that, that these guys have, which is why if you watch a lot of martial arts films, you will see the same actors over and over and over again, you know, either side by side fighting against someone or fighting against each other because they are, uh, they're so familiar with each other and you get a more convincing fight scene as a result. Right, right. And there's sort of a subset of, of the five Venoms there. They, because uh, Chang Che, the director, you know, in his eyes, he kind of saw this film that we're talking about today sort of a vehicle for um, a group of that also became known as the Chang Gang or Hong Kong's Brat Pack, which would be Philip Kwok, Chang Shang, and Lu Feng. Because they basically had free reign to to feature their acrobatic opera routines combined with, you know, flips and flops and spinning out stunt gags. And, you know, they show off a lot of their movements while playing street performers. And then during the final fight, if you notice that, you know, all their street skills and demonstration skills are like, they're just applied to combat scenarios. So it really kind of makes you, you know, you know, it makes you think that if you practice Chinese opera combat, you could apply it to a street fight. And, um, you know, Lo Ming's only fight against Han and his three bodyguards was, was just straight kung fu and simple weaponry without all the fancy-dancy, you know, opera work that they were doing. And then again, did you notice in this film, too, that Sun Qian's contributions were minimal because they it, it, he, all he could do was kick, and it didn't really blend with the type of fights that were featured in this film. So he's mostly, um, you know, kind of pushed off, and he's not really a major part of the story, although I thought he was really good in this. But I loved the, the way the action sequences were filmed, too. From If you notice that, too, there's a lot of side wide-angle shots, side shots, medium shots, so you could see what everybody was doing. And there was one point, especially in the end fight, where it, I felt like I was at a stage watching them doing it live, you know? Yeah, you definitely get that sense like it's a, a stage performance compared to, say, you know, a theatrical performance. Right. So let's get into the cast here. Of course, we've got Philip Kwok again as Liang Kuo Jen. It was so awesome to see Lu Fang as one of the good guys in this. Yeah, he's... So, what did you think? I, I liked him. I mean, I always do. Like, it's hard to see to see these guys and not just, like, get excited that they're going to be that they're gonna be fighting each other. Yeah. But it's nice to see them team up as well. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, exactly. It's good to see them change it up every so often. We've talked about a lot of the other actors. We haven't actually talked about Lu Feng yet, so I'm just going to give a little bit of information about him. He played Fu Chuan Yi, and... 
His original name was uh, Chu Shi Shu, and uh, he was born in 56 in Taiwan. And at eight, he learned martial arts at the, the Army-affiliated Junior Liu Gang Drama School. And then he went on to become a stuntman and Chang Chase arm and thought he was really good. So he recommended Lu Feng to the Shaw Brothers as an actor. And his first role was in The Five Deadly Venoms. And that really just opened up the doors for his subsequent roles, in particular his villain roles that we mentioned. He, he's done a lot of movies with uh, Chang Che, with Chang Che, I'm sorry, which include uh, Invincible Shaolin, Crippled Avengers, The Daredevils, Two Champions of Shaolin, and Legend of the Fox. And he was one of Chang Che's favorites. And together with other actors like, you know, Chang Shang and Sun Chan and Ricky Chang, they, they were all, you know, favorites of Chang Che. That's why he used them all so much. But I guess in, in, the, in this movie... Shaolin, no, no, I'm sorry, the movie we covered last time, Shaolin Rescue, is Liu Feng won an Outstanding Supporting Actor Award at the 25th Asian Film Festival in 1979. And um, after, afterwards, with the support of Chang Liu, he went back to Taiwan and founded a film company together with Philip Kwok and Chang Sheng, and he starred in their debut film, Ruthless Tactics, which we have mentioned before, but we'll get to that someday on the show. Uh, but he retired in 1985, and he hasn't really done much since. But yeah, I liked him here. I thought it was just he he pulled it off like it was kind of comical at first because he didn't have a chair that was that you could sit in at his place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then he became you know serious, pretending to be the you know army, the son of the field marshal there. Yeah, I like the fact that you, it demonstrates the um, the range that these guys have. Like they're not just these one trick ponies. They're very talented. You know, and it's not just the martial arts. Like they have, like I said, they have this great chemistry together. They have this great like camaraderie, and they're just there's so much fun to watch. There's so much fun, right? To, you know, in whatever role that they have them in, like they're always going to bring their A game, whether it's you know to the fight or to you know the the overall acting, their performance. You know, it's. <sighs> They're very funny, but they can also be stoic and serious, you know, depending yeah. on what they and we get to see that in in this film. Yeah, absolutely. And Wang Lee, who played General Han, he's one of these guys, I guess, because we had mentioned before that Wei Pai ended up not working with the other Venoms in subsequent movies, and he he did. He was in quite a few of them. Um, we saw him in Shaolin Rescuers and the Magnificent Ruffians. He was in that as all, well. and he's best known as Chief Number Three in the Mass Avengers. So he was good. He looked different enough here that I didn't actually recognize him until I went and looked it up after the movie, after watching it, I should say. Hmm. Yeah, there's a, a lot. There were a couple of folks that looked familiar, and I had to, I had to look it up. Yeah, the Hong Kong movie database is really helpful, especially because when you click on the actor's name, you know, like we said, there's like sometimes there's several iterations of their name, but if you click on it, it'll usually come up with a picture of them from several different movies, because they all they all manage to look different in every movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely, like, you can tell who they are, especially if you're, you know, familiar with them. But there's also that there's, and they did it again in this film, like, they kind of have this uniformity of their characters, especially if, you know, whoever happens to be on the same side, they all will have, like, the same hairstyle, the same outfits, like, there's not a whole lot to tell them apart, you know, like, sometimes they'll even all have the same, like, facial hairstyle like oh everybody's got a mustache nobody's got a mustache you know it, right 
and especially on some of the wider shots, it's hard to tell who is who because they're all a very similar height. They're all, you know, again, wearing the same outfits, having the same haircuts. Like, it's sometimes hard to tell, <laughs> especially in, like, these intense action scenes where they're all, like, jumping and moving and flipping and spinning and changing places. Like, in this one, when they were doing, like, the when they all locked arms and they were all spinning and kicking, like, (laughs) yeah, it was great. But yeah, sometimes it can be hard to keep track of who is who, but at least with some of these, you can tell that it's really them. They're not using stunt doubles, which I really appreciate. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's again, I mean, Philip Kwok hanging by his feet for God's sakes. Oh yeah. And, and like, that's the thing that I always bring up with these is they're, they're always, you know, very dedicated and they're so much better than some of these, you know, big budget action movies because you can see that they're there and they don't have, you know, a guy goes to throw a punch and there's a, a cut and then you see the on the opposite side and like the guy taking the punch and then you cut back right. and it's like <laughs> you just keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'm not a I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did you notice, though, when you were talking about trying to differentiate them, that Lu Feng, I think in the last movie and this movie, I, I didn't notice before, but his hair was always recognizable because he sort of had that 80s feathered hair, even though this was still 79. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, I mean, who knows, maybe he was just a trendsetter. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe uh, maybe he was like, you know what, I'm way ahead of the time. You know, I hung out with David Bowie last week, and he told me this is what uh, what all the cool kids were going to do, so... <laughs> I'm going to do it. Right. <laughs> now, one actor that was in this movie for, for a very brief time, but I looked his career up and I was suitably impressed. It was uh, Cho Tat Hua. He played Leung's father. And, of course, he's shot and killed in the first five minutes. But this guy, oh, he was also in Shaolin Rescuers, and he had a long acting career. He was in 404 films Jesus. starting in 1936. <laughs> and he worked all the way up until 2001. So... I've got to check this guy out more in some of his films because um, apparently he's you know, a prolific actor over in China. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, especially spanning that long of a career. Like you're going to be seeing like huge leaps and bounds in the industry. Right. That's interesting. You know, that's, I mean, who knows? He, he may have been just, you know, because he's friends with all these guys, probably just was like, yeah, I'll do that part, even though it's only five minutes long. <laughs> I mean, he could just be uh, an absolute pro because uh you know that's what some of these guys would do like you know you'll see a guy like uh, who's a very well respected actor um and i'm totally blanking on his name now but he's in all the uh the volkswagen commercials now oh my god what is his name i have to look him up but he's he's very well respected paul giamatti no that's not it <laughs> yeah paul giamatti i was right for some reason i was thinking oh okay the other the other guy um Paul Sorvino. I'm like, no, that's not it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul Giamatti. I'll always remember him as pig vomit in the Howard Stern movie. Like he's always he, you know, he's a guy that like he'll give you an Oscar nominated role, but he'll also take like a bit part, or he'll be in a, a you know Volkswagen commercial with one of the Culkin kids. Like he just loves the, <laughs> that's true. the, the art of acting. So maybe that's what this is with, uh, right. with this guy. Yeah, could be. And yeah, and that's just it too. And it's plus, it, it, a paycheck's a paycheck, no matter what you mm-hmm. do, you know. 
So, you know, and by all accounts, this movie is considered one of Chang Che's lighter films. And like I said earlier, I, that's one of the reasons why I liked it. You know, I liked its simplicity. You know, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of fighting. I think there's only 35% of the film was, was combat. But, um, you know, that last 15, 20 minutes totally makes it worth watching. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just to see them do all the, the acrobatics and stuff. And one thing I liked was when, the way Philip Kwok would shout the move before they did it. Yeah, so, like, we didn't really know what they were, but they knew what they were doing, you know? Yeah, which I liked. Yeah. You'd be like, okay, roundhouse, and then they'd all do something, and okay, a quick kick or something. <laughs> oh, there was one funny scene towards the beginning when they're they're first getting together, and Philip Kwok's father is making him do this thing where he's he's tied a rope around his waist, and the rope is sort of... It's horizontal, going from one pole to another, and he's literally just spinning and kicking this giant board, this giant board, or this piece of wood yeah. that's you know next to the rope. And that was crazy. I was getting dizzy just watching him do it. And then he cheated. Right. He ties a chair to it when it's weighted. Yeah, it's like going up and down like a uh, with a rock. Yeah. <laughs> and the father's sitting in the house, and he's thinking, "Oh, it's good to hear the sounds of him training." Oh, he's doing such a great job. Yeah. <laughs> There were so many cool things in this movie, too, though. I, th- I think, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was General Han. Was he, he was fighting with the guy that had the suit that if you hit him with a sword, it would bleed like Yeah, red like the dust. dust came out. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I like that. Like, it definitely uh, illustrated how, because, like, obviously the sand's going to absorb the impact, but then when he starts, uh, you know, ripping it up, you know, with his, uh, with his, uh, his weapons there, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And it was cool because he was really hitting him, obviously, to get that effect. Yes. So that was that was impressive. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. But there was just a just a lot of impressive stuff in this movie. I, I definitely think people need to see this one. Mm. Y- you know, and it was fun to see them all together. Like when Lo Meng had gone off, and then they all decided to get together and and sneak into the place. Like you said, you know, they were doing the Batman with the tiny little grappling hook, and and it was just so much fun to see them all working together. And what was there was one there was one scene where I think Sun Chen was gonna pick or Chang Shang was gonna pick the locks and then he looks at Lo Fang and tells him to look away or something <laughs> and they're like they're all getting you know they had interesting character interactions. Yeah, they they again I can't you know stress enough how much I enjoy their their time together and like their their interactions like they just have so much fun. Like yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Loming's fight with uh, General Han was was amazing, and it took a lot to take him down. They finally had to literally shoot him. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean the the final fight in the uh, in the warehouse was great when they finally like they grab him and they make a wish. Oof. Oh, that yeah yeah yeah. No, I was talking about Loming though when he went s- and jumping up and down on his chest. Yeah. <laughs> but I was talking about when Loming went after. Uh, Maybe I said the wrong name. When he went after Han uh, mm. by himself, and it just they they couldn't take him down. Him and his three guys. No, it's because they shot him. He was good. Like yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. And there was an interesting scene at the end of. I know there was an interesting scene at the end of that though, though too, because it cuts to Sun Chen sitting up in his bed as if he sitting up in his bed like as if he just had a nightmare. And I thought that was something cool that they didn't really expound upon. They just sort of just showed us that and went with it. But it showed the connection they had, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's it was... I was kind of hoping that they were going to do something about it. But, like, 
you know, I'm I'm glad that they didn't. They kind of kept it mysterious. Yeah, because it wasn't that kind of movie. They didn't, weren't really delving into anything supernatural per se. Right. Yeah. You know, it was just like these guys are really close friends, and this is why they are kind of you know reacting to this the way that they are. Yeah. But then when um, Philip Quark is you know, doing the acrobatics with the giant flag. I was thinking of you. I'm like, oh, Patsy's going to love this. Yeah, I love when they use the flags because the flags, as we have determined, are the deadliest weapons in all of martial arts, according to uh, these films. Yep. <laughs> We've seen it happen over and over again. Just anytime somebody somebody comes out with, with a flag, it's like, nope. Like, they'll block knives. Doesn't matter. Right. What was that one? Uh, yeah, Avengers, Masked Avengers. Or... Was it Masked Avengers or Magnificent Ruffians? Were you were you talking about the end fight where you've got the one guy? Yeah, like there's the one guy and there's like four four dudes with with flags and they're like blocking every attack. Yeah, I forget which one that was now. <laughs> Either way, go back through our uh, our episodes and you'll you'll figure it out. Right, <laughs> cloth foo as we call it. But I love anytime they pick up anything like that one training scene where they're like throwing the, the, the batons back and forth as they're fighting. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, like that's such. And it was, again, no cuts, no like, you know, clear stunt doubles being used, you know, like no shots from far away, like no CGI. Like they were doing every one of those moves and their technique was just amazing. You know, and it was funny because I, I watched this twice and the first time I watched it, and, you know, the movie was done, and I, I shut it off or whatever, and it went to regular TV, and an episode of Star Trek was on, and it was just, it was Kirk and Spock having a fight scene, and when they did the close-ups, it was Shatner and Nimoy, but then when they did the faraway shots, it was obviously stuntmen, and it just kept cutting back and forth between that, and it was just so laughable, and I, especially after coming off of this, you know? Yeah, it's not, it's not fair to compare, like, the old Star Trek, the old Star Trek fights to anything like it those were pretty awful <laughs> like even the the fights you'll see in you know the next movie that we're talking about those fight scenes were more realistic and there was a part where they all jumped up on hutch and like one guy was trying to punch him and he punched his friend instead like they it was clearly <laughs> a mistake but they kept it in the film Oh, man, that's so awesome. So a couple more things about this movie. I loved the groovy 70s soundtrack. Oh, yeah. I thought that was really cool. One thing I did notice, though, is, like, at the beginning when they're, like, you know, like, they're talking and, like, you know, you see the black band and, like, oh, my dad just got killed. Like, the music does not match the mood. Like, (laughs) it's, like, oh, upbeat and, like, you know, know, something you'd expect to find on, like, the Partridge family as they're bopping across town on their bus. And it's just like, oh, yes, my father yeah. was killed. We're having a blast today. It's like, oh, my God, why would you pick that music? It does not match at all. Oh, God. Oh, my God, that's so funny. But, you know, Lu, Lu Fang, although and we always touch upon the dubs in these movies, I, I thought his dub was very nerdy sounding. But he cleaned up well when he put the suit on, the 1930s suit. He looked awesome. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But yeah, the, the, I think I think Chang Sheng had the same voice in Philip Kwok, but his voice, Lu Fang's, was different. and It was kind of nerdy sounding. I I swear that nerdy guy. We've heard him in other movies. They keep bouncing him. They keep bouncing him around from one character to another. <laughs> I just wish you know, like I I don't care like what the voices are. I just wish they would stick with the same guys, get some consistency. 
Exactly. You know, but I mean, I understand. Like, you're playing exactly. different characters, and like, you maybe want to try and match the tone of the character to the voice that you pick. I don't know. It's it's a crapshoot with these. Like, you know, fortunately, the films are good enough where you can ignore or not ignore, but kind of get past the uh, the weird voices and whatnot. Yeah. And th- there was one element to, uh, that I kept thinking was anachronistic, but it wasn't because it took place in the 1930s. But because we've seen so many of these that took place, you know, a couple of centuries earlier, it was so cool to see like the Tommy guns and and the car. I thought it was really funny seeing the Venoms all hop into a car and drive over somewhere. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> and the break, break, Cause break. Because just so not used to that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, we're just so not used to that that you kind of forget that it was set in a you know the twentieth century. And but but didn't didn't the um the outside of the warehouse look like a backlot set? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like they literally told everybody at the studio, "All right, go on lunch now. We're going to shoot here for a little bit." Yeah. <laughs> and they go, they go into the warehouse and there's these dudes gambling and they knocked them out like in a matter of two seconds, like like five or six dudes. <laughs> I like the fact that they were. You know, just like kind of standing there. It's like, hey, what are you doing gambling in the middle of the day? Right. <laughs> Not that they were gambling, but they were gambling during the middle of the day. Right. <laughs> oh, I think he almost wanted to surprise them, surprise them like he was, uh, you know, a dock manager or something. And t- took them off guard enough time just to confuse them for them to just get all knocked out within seconds. But yeah, then that, that whole thing just led into that end fight, and that was just so good. And they were they were almost like ninjas, like you mentioned, you know, ninjas earlier. Because Philip Kwok and uh, Chiang Shang, they you know they were hiding, and then they jumped out and dropped the um, the what do you call it, the wooden two by fours on the door to lock the door, and then they jumped back in to where they were hiding so that General Han couldn't see them. Oh yeah, they kept doing that. They kept like jumping, jumping around, like hiding. Like that's that's why like this was easily the most fun fight sequence that they've ever done is like yeah like the one where they're uh I, I couldn't even tell who it was but like he runs up the the ramp and then the guy chases him and then like he comes up from behind the pillar and kicks the guy back down the ramp then he stands there and the guy runs right. up the ramp again and he moves and the guy just kind of dives off the side <laughs> like it's so fun. it's like if the three stooges did martial arts like definitely uh you know jackie chan-esque with some of these yeah like hanging upside down from a rope ladder oh yeah so many things no did of course now I, I didn't i didn't put it in my notes and i can't remember did all three survive at the end or did one of them get one killed? of them died like they did the rocks rock paper scissor thing to see who was gonna stay and kind of hold them off while the other two escaped and uh that's right, yeah. I forget who it was, but he died and he like put up a peace sign and like that's what they that's what they focused on and that was like how the movie ended and it's just like up oh, and the end. And he's got one line of dialogue though, he goes, I should have chose scissors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So uh final thoughts, Patsy. Oh, I love this one. Like I haven't had an issue with any of the Venom movies that we've watched. Like they're so much fun. This one definitely I think the uh one of the best choreographed it's easily the most fun final fight sequences and you know it kind of oh, takes yeah. the tropes of you know a lot of these martial arts films uh, and the raid uh, redemption did this really really well as uh, as a uh, as a modern film where usually you know you'd see like you know in any in any film or any tv series like there's a, whenever there's like a final boss fight 
it's always like you have to fight this guy and like he's not the final boss now you have to fight this guy like he's the final boss and he's super difficult but in this it's like how yeah. good is the final boss like you need three guys to fight him like that's how good he is right and you saw that in uh, in the raid as well like the final fight where it's uh yep what's his name the guy who plays mad dog and it's oh it's been Ru- a while since uh, let me look it up real quick. But you have uh, Iko Uwais, his brother's character, and uh, oh, it's going to bug me. Hold on. Yayan Ruhian. And I'm okay, probably yeah. pronouncing that terribly, but Yayan Ruhian, who was also in uh, John Wick 3. Oh. Yeah, he, he fought John Wick. It was him and another guy fighting John Wick. Oh, wow. I have to watch at the that end, again. right before he goes to fight the last, the last boss. Oh, wow. Yeah, I got to revisit those John Wick movies again. But yeah, it's it's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And this this is definitely one, especially for people who are just getting into this sort of thing. Um, if you want to kind of jump into a, a much lighter film that's, you know, not overly complex, but thoroughly enjoyable from beginning to end, this is the one. If you can find it, I'll try and maybe post the link of where I got it from online. So if people want to order these movies, they can. Um, so, yeah. So, all right. Uh, there we go. Highly recommend the uh, Shaolin Daredevils. And uh, we're going to take a break here. And when we return, we're going to discuss Boot Hill from 1969. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Prepare for a 
spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and The Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel, OSI 74, to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. Stander as mummy, saves his friends, and buries his enemies. I'll take that bullet out of him, all right? I'll cure him. I'll make him well. And then I'll run out, borrow a gun, and shoot him in a place it will take. Eduardo Cianelli as the commissioner. He wrote his own laws. You see now, Judge, we... Don't call me Judge, sir. No, Your Honor. And not even Your Honor. Bud Spencer as Hutch, killed for a town that didn't care. Ooh. You see that? Look at the mess we got ourselves in. I told you we were wasting time with this bunch. Not even an earthquake will get them moving. 
There's one other thing to do before day comes. What? If they don't listen to me, they'll all end up six feet under. And so will their wives and their children. Because after Finch takes care of those four idiots, he won't spare anyone. This is Boot Hill, where nobody died of natural causes. Ventures International release, filmed in Technicolor and Technoscope. Yeah, so today we're covering Boot Hill, which uh, kind of has a little bit of a uh, tangential connection to uh, to our uh, our Shaw Brothers film because uh, this one has a lot of acrobatics and uh, kind of centers around a circus, which is um, kind of bizarre at the beginning of the film. I will I will definitely say that uh, as a, like a bit of a disclaimer, but uh, we do have the plot synopsis. So uh, one night in the Old West, a man named Cat tries to ride out of a town and is ambushed by a large number of men. He is wounded but manages to lure them away and hides in a wagon belonging to a circus company. Outside town, the wagons are searched by men who are shot by Cat and the trapeze artist Thomas, who is a former gunfighter. And we'll talk about Thomas a little bit more because he is an interesting uh, character and the actor who plays him has a very extensive history. Cat leaves the company as soon as he can travel. Mm -hmm. The same night, men arrive and search the wagons during the show and discover traces of him. To retaliate, they shoot down Thomas's partner Joe during their performance, with uh, a very heavy-handed racial slur directed at him right before they do it. Thomas finds Cat and nurses him back to health, saying that he needs him as, quote, bait for my trap. Cat takes him to Hutch, who lives in a house together with another big man, who is called Baby Doll. That's very interesting. All I could think of was Zack Snyder's uh, uh, Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch, yeah. Uh, and he is a mute, a deaf mute. Hutch receives Cat with hostility, and Cat explains that Sharp, a friend of Hutch who is a prospector, needs help to stop mining boss Fisher from taking his claim, and that Cat had won the deed to the claim in a rigged poker game to be able to take it out of town which is why he was attacked in the beginning. Hutch reluctantly agrees to come along, together with Baby Doll, which, again, I can't get over that name. <laughs> they find the remnants of the circus with its manager, Mamie, refit it, and gather the artists back. At the mining town, a county commissioner arrives to review its claims, but the miners are afraid to talk to him, except for the McGavin family. And they are besieged in their home and eventually destroyed with dynamite by the large outlaw band of Finch, who cooperates with Fisher. However, at night, a message is delivered to the commissioner in his room by a dwarf from the circus. In the morning, the circus arrives, and the commissioner convinces Fisher to invite everybody to the show. At the circus show, they perform pantomimes about the threat to the miners and the killing of the McGavins. The miners find guns of their seats, while Fisher's men find feathers. There's a fight, and Fisher's men are killed. Four go out to face the might of the Finch gang in a might nightly fight. 
They get help from the circus people, including uh, dwarves and can-can dancers, and eventually the miners also join in and the gang is wiped out. Fisher shoots Mamie in the back. Cat appears and says it will render Fisher the gallows unless he wants to try his luck with the gun. Fisher lays it down and Mamie says that makes him the real clown. At the end, Cat and Hutch ride away together while Baby Doll, who has amazingly started talking and is no longer deaf, stays with one of the can-can dancers at the circus. The very same can-can dancer uh, on whom he was spying very creepily. <laughs> so I just want to quickly, before we, like, this is obviously the third uh, in the in the uh, trilogy of the films that we've been watching with Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer as Cat and Hutch. And, you know, I've definitely enjoyed these. And you're getting more and more, um, I want to say, social commentary in these as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw in the last one, and again, the actor's name is uh, escaping me, but the, the gentleman who was in Star Trek. Brock Peters. Uh, there was... Yes, uh, there was some uh, racial overtones directed at his character and, and Cat and Hutch side with him. And then we see the same thing happen in this film right before Joe is killed. He is called a racial slur. And then Cat and Hutch again team up with, with uh, uh, Thomas. Now, Thomas is played by Woody Strode, yep. who has been in over 100 films. He passed away at, at the age of 80, but he's been in 100 films. And I'm like, man, this guy looks so familiar. What have <laughs> I seen him in? Wow, what have I seen him in? He was in Spartacus. Yep. He was in The Ten Commandments. Yep. He was even in... The 1960s Batman show. Yep. <laughs> he has been in tons of... He was also in uh, one of my favorite westerns coming in, because I had never really seen any, but The Quick and the Dead, directed by Sam Raimi. Oh, yeah. With, uh, Gene Hackman and, and a young Leo DiCaprio and Sharon Stone and Gladiator. Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, yeah. And I was like, okay, that's where I know him from. Yeah. And even the guy who played Fisher, Victor he looked Porter. really familiar. Yep. We'll get into him in a second. I want, just wanted to talk a little bit more about Woody Strode because he was also in The Man yeah. Who Shot Liberty Valance. He was in Sergio yep. Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, which we are going to eventually cover here. Um, he's in another one that I think just recently got a Blu-ray release. It's called Vigilante with Robert Forster and Fred Williamson. And that one I really want to see at some point. But um, it's really kind of weird that he was in this movie because literally... The other day, I guest starred on an episode of uh, Monster Kid Radio, which is a podcast hosted by Derek M. Cook, and we discussed Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner and Woody Strode. So I just thought that was really kind of weird, like oddly universal connecting something somehow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it is funny because like as we you know as we sort of move forward with these uh, with these films, we get to see like I said you know more and more guest stars who have been in a whole bunch of other things. Right. Like you know talking about the guy who uh, who played Fisher. Yep. Uh, his name is um, Victor Buono, and I was like, man, he's got a really familiar face. Who is this guy? I recognize recognized him from Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh, right. Okay. Like, he's got over 100 films as well that he's been in. And see, a lot Tim... of stuff I didn't. No, go ahead. I was going to say, a lot of stuff I didn't recognize him in. And he died very young. Yeah. Uh, he died at 43. Yeah. Like, just shy of his 44th birthday. See, to, to me, he'll always be the villain King Tut on the Batman TV series. Cause yes. That's, to, I mean, the Victor Buono is, is, is King Tut. And then he was also in a movie, and I always remember the cover at the video store called The Mad Butcher. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That was another one that came up. I hadn't seen it. Yeah. But I, I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Like, both he and uh, Woody, or depending on how he was uh, credited, Woodrow Strode, both came up with some 
some really great performances and they've been in a lot of uh, very very good movies oh yeah yeah, I mean, he was also in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Hush, Hush, Sweet, Sweet Charlotte. Um, and it's funny, one of the Spaghetti Western books that I have, they describe his character of Honey Fisher as one of the genre's most unintentionally non-threatening villains. <laughs> <laughs> like, he definitely tried to be kind of intimidating or scary, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't. not really. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you recognize the actor who played Mammy, either by his looks or his voice? All I could think of was, like, Buddy Hackett. Like, <laughs> I, I know he wasn't Buddy Hackett. But I was like, man, this guy reminds me a lot of Buddy Hackett. We're going to have to find a, a, a Spaghetti Western with Buddy Hackett in it, because last time you said, um, what's his name? Uh, I said the same Eli thing. Eli Wallach reminded you of Buddy Hackett. <laughs> yeah, he did. Like, they have that voice. And the fa- well, this one he didn't really have the voice; it was the face. Well, I was like, "Who the hell is that?" Uh, I did not rec- I did not okay. really recognize him. He's Lionel Stander, and uh, his mo- and that was really his voice because his everyone at home who's watched the show Heart to Heart will remember him as he played the character Max, who was sort of um, uh, the 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 butler. And, you know, chauffeur and, you know, just all around um, helper to this couple played by Robert Wagner. And um, forgive me, I can't remember her name. And he was Max. And and when they met, it was Moiter. But, uh, Patsy, you should know him as the voice of Cup from the Transformers animated movie. (laughs) There we go. All right. I knew he sounded he sounded familiar. But yes, yeah, the 1986, and he was like a main character, him yeah, and the Hot yeah. Rod running around doing stuff. So, and it's funny because um, uh, I used to, I did a job once with this guy named Adam Stander, and I asked him if he was related to Lionel Stander, and he was astonished. He's like, "Wow, nobody from from my generation knows who Lionel Stander is." I'm like, "Well, how can you not know Max from Heart to Heart and Cup and all that?" And he claimed that Lionel Stander was his uncle and he was going to put a documentary together about him. But I don't know if that ever happened or if that was just a tall tale. But I just thought that was an interesting connection because, you know, I'd never met anybody with that name before. And I'm like, you got to be related to him. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely not a uh, a common name. Yeah. So a lot of the other actors have been in a lot of spaghetti westerns and I um, nothing really jumped out at me. Did any of them jump out at you? Um, Nothing really. Yeah. Uh, as far as you know the other actors but obviously you know we have terrence hill coming back as cat we have bud coming back as uh bud spencer coming back as hutch yeah uh, as we mentioned woody strode as thomas george eastman as baby doll eduardo eduardo cianelli as boone glauco onorado as finch did he look like a blonde Alberto george lucas a little bit yeah <laughs> as you know very young yeah alberto delacqua as sam the storekeeper nazareno's imperia as charlie Victor Buono and Lionel Standard. Right. Again, I will say also that Buono is not only being one of the least intimidating, like, big bads of a film, also probably the least intimidating main name of yeah. all time. <laughs> I'll get you. My name's Honey Fisher. It's like, <laughs> Honey Fisher? Baby doll. All they needed was for uh, Giuliano Gemma to show up as Angel Face. And <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> My name is Misty Cupcakes. <laughs> I'm the deadliest gunfighter. In the, like, what happened to, like, Black Bart? Is right. like, you know. <laughs> Misty Cupcakes. 
Oh, oh god. Now the first time the I watched worst this names ever. <laughs> I did end up watching this one a couple times as well and I was confused by the first time I watched it. I I really couldn't understand what was going on and maybe I think I was distracted or something during it. So it really wasn't until the second time around that I kind of figured out what was going on. I really enjoyed it. I mean, did you See, get I will, any of that? I I only watched it the one time, but you know, again, I I definitely enjoyed it. Like there was some good back and forth, you know, which we've kind of come to expect from, you know, Terrence and Bud working together as Cat and Hutch. You get some good, like, well-laid plans of how they're going to get their revenge and, you know, how they're going to, you know, overcome these insurmountable odds that they're facing. Right. It's definitely something that they like to do. And uh, to kind of touch on, you know, them fighting insurmountable odds, like the scene where they're all, everybody's fighting everyone, and the four guys jump on on uh, Hutch, which we always see because right. he's a big guy. And there was literally a guy that was on him that like tried to punch down and punched one of his buddies that was attacking uh, attacking Hutch. And it's like it's clearly a problem. Right. It's clearly a mistake, but they kept it in there and I just thought it was so funny. Although it might be, you know, maybe it was a touch by the director as like, you know, oh, this is, uh, you know, as Giuseppe Colizzi says, like, this was my my statement on how chaotic these fights can be. And like, it's very realistic. Like, you know, I have a guy trying to fight somebody and he ends up hitting one of his allies because war is stupid. You know, like, you right. know, maybe I left it in there as a statement because I'm so brilliant. It's like, uh, it, it, I could I could buy that. Yep. I could buy that. I could also buy it slipped by the editor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or at that point, they but that's something you would it. never see in a Shaw film. Yeah. <laughs> he really hit that guy too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he clubbed him, and it's like, <laughs> oh. And that's the thing about this movie too is I I kind of got the feeling that Kalitsi couldn't decide whether he wanted it to be a comedy or a gritty western, but I think it worked well enough that the elements of both just kind of came together. But it did seem a little uneven in that, you know? Yeah. When, you, when you're not really sure which direction you're going and you try to do too much of one and then you have to overcompensate with the other, it really, I think it kind of falls flat. Like this definitely, I think if he had stuck more to keeping it serious with, you know, a few jokes thrown in here and there, especially if it, when it comes to, um, you know, Cat and Hutch, because those guys have a really good rapport and they're really good at you know, uh, kind of playing off each other. Like, you know, when they first see each other, yeah. you know, and he's kind of just like chilling out and like he calls him a mule and like, <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. And they, they really jumped right into the roles. I mean, Kat, like right at the beginning was up to some trouble and he just looked like he was in his element skulking around in the dark with his, his poncho that looked like a cape. That was, I thought he looked really cool in this movie. And uh, you know, and then poor Hutch is just sitting by the by the lakeside fishing, and and he can't, doesn't even realize he's caught a fish on this pole because he snooze and and uh, baby doll throws this huge rock at him and it doesn't even make him flinch. He just finally kind of kind of moves, <laughs> like wakes up. Mm-hmm. Well, I like when they do that to kind of show like how strong and like impervious to harm he is. Yeah. Like, cause you got to remember in the first movie, the guy got shot in the goddamn head <laughs> and he's been fine for the last couple of movies, <laughs> which is why I kind of thought the, uh, 
when what's his name cat shot through his hat i thought that was kind of like an homage to that oh maybe yeah i did not mean for all those things to rhyme i mean who knows if that bullet's in his head maybe it works his way down his body and eventually he'll just shit it out one day <laughs> well maybe it's maybe it's kind of like on the simpsons where homer was dumb because he had a crayon in his brain maybe the <laughs> the uh the bullet makes Hutch smarter. I don't know. Like <laughs> now, you know, there's some places that I've read online where um, people, some people think that this was um, Hill and Spencer's worst film, but it's got a pretty big cult following, and I thought they were they were great in it. Their chemistry even, you know, got even even closer as characters. I thought. I mean, of the of the three in the, in this trilogy, I would say this one is the weakest. Yeah, I do enjoy it. But I I think the first one's probably the best. Although that last one was really good too. Like the first two are on par with each other. This one there was a, a noticeable dip in quality. Yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that you know a lot of the runtime was dedicated to showing the circus. Like that opening scene was absolutely bizarre. Right. And there was a lot of filler in there. It's like oh we're showing that there's a circus in town and some of the uh, choices of what they're choosing to show like the the cer- certain shot choices like focusing on the ca- the 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 dancing girls and then Joe dead on the ground then the dancing girls then Joe and it's like that went on for about 4 minutes right and it just would it started off like here's 15 seconds on the girls now here's 15 seconds on Joe now here's 12 seconds on the girl and 12 seconds on and it just kind of cut back and forth right. you know until you were just like going back and forth like rapidly in succession like a couple of times a second and it's just like why is this here like are you trying to be like David Lynch like what are we doing like what's like it kind of takes you out of the movie like it's not like show him show the reaction and then move on and then you know it has some like blues brothers-esque uh and i know the blues brothers came out after this but blues brothers-esque we're getting the band back together type of scenes with a lot of comedy in it or attempted comedy (laughs) like when uh one of the uh, acrobats is there uh, at the hotel and the guy's yelling at him and he ends up taking some of the ink and like making a mustache on the guy's face (laughs) as he quits like Like, you're in the Old West. you got to be careful somebody doesn't pull out a gun and just shoot you in the face. Right. (laughs) But, you know, to that scene that you were talking about where, um, what was it, Joe got killed? He was blindfolded, right? He was the blindfolded dude? Yeah, Yeah. doing the uh, flipping and jumping and whatnot. I got the impression that the, the dancing girls were covering because the audience really didn't know that he had gotten shot. Yeah. And no, so, I know. I, I do. I, they were definitely like, you know, what's his name? Threw him out there. I was like, yeah, yeah. The show is. Oh, this is part of the show. Everything. This is exactly what we planned on doing. Like, right. oh, you know, everybody go on out and do the thing. Make the customers happy because you don't want people asking for refunds. Yeah. I just meant that when they just kept cutting back and forth, like they would just show the girls, then Joe, then the girls and Joe, then the girls and Joe, girls and Joe, girls and Joe. And it was just like it was four minutes that padded the runtime for no reason other than right. like, it's like, yeah, we get it. He's dead. Like the guy who shot him used a racial slur and then shot the rope and caused him to fall to his death. Yeah. Like we get it. And you put the girls out there to cover for it. Yeah. But <laughs> it's too much. It just, it, yeah, it, it took away from it. Like if you want to cut back once or twice, like that's fine, but they did it 
I don't know, 15 times. Yeah. Like, they went back and forth, and it didn't make any sense to me, and it was getting irritating. Right. And again, you know, some of the comedy stuff, like, I I guess you want to show off the acrobatic skills of some of your your actors, but, like, you know, like I was just talking about when the the guy quit his uh, hotel desk job, like, uh, Thomas and the, the first guy, like, walk into the the establishment on their hands like they open the door and like they're both walking on their hands as they walk into the the thing and the guy sees them and he's like oh i'm gonna quit and i'm gonna do a backflip off of this thing and oh look how fun i am it's like (laughs) yeah all right i guess (laughs) and you know what i loved though was the scene prior to joe getting shot where cats kind of you know skulking through the town and and the bad guys spot him and they kept juxtaposing scenes from that with scenes of the guys doing the death-defying stuff in the circus. And I just thought that was really cool that they both seen someone's putting their life on the line, you know, one for entertainment and one for survival. And I just really liked that sort of cutting back and forth in that regard. I thought that worked very well. Yeah, I think the uh, the whole thing works really well. You know, a couple of shots here and there, a uh, couple of choices aside, um, I thought the whole movie was overall very good. I know that... I said this was the weakest one, but still, like, it was good, you know? It's like saying, you know, New Hope is the weakest of the, you know, first trilogy. Like, New Hope was still really good. Right. Uh, but the other <laughs> ones are just so much better. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a series that I would I would recommend to people. Oh, yeah. And, again, this is this is one that I, I went into without, without watching the trailer or anything. Yeah, but you do get here. to see some of the uh some of the uh the dastardly deeds for i guess lack of a better term with some of the bad guys like you know like oh i you know i need medicine for my for my daughter she's got dysentery from the you know rotten food that you sell here at the store and it's like well that's too goddamn bad for you isn't it <laughs> i'm like all right well then i'm just going to take your stuff it's like well if you do that you're going to get killed right it's like well I'm taking all your guns and your lard. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, we need some lard too. All right, we'll just take it. Like, <laughs> oh man. You know, one thing too that was interesting was the soundtrack to this movie because it was a mix. Like every so often, the music would change up. You had circus music, jazz music, classical music, and even like the little midget clowns were playing big band music. So it was just Yeah, I was like, this is kind of nutty, like like this jazz review here. I'm like, they're clearly yeah. not playing this. <laughs> and did you notice whenever they showed them, they never showed them in comparison to a tall person. It was always tight close-ups on their faces, which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah, except when they were fighting the... Uh... The, the three of them were fighting that one guy at the end. They beat the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah, and of course you had the had you had to have the obligatory nut shot in there, right? <laughs> like he did the the running headbutt to the crotch. Like that's always what's going to happen. <laughs> oh man, that was a great fight though, because he was just so rooting for them to just kick the shit out of that guy, and they did. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I thought a lot of the scenes, the outdoor scenes that were supposed to be at night, were were a little too dark. Like, they weren't... 
I, th I think in the previous two films, he had a lot more contrast and you could see things a lot better. And there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of color in this film for a film that, you know, was supposed to have a circus in it. Yeah, there was some uh, some interesting choices when it came to some of these shots, like I was saying. I don't think they were all the best choices. And it was kind of frustrating because of um, because of how like the first two movies were were done so well. Like, even when it was dark, you could still see what was going on. I don't know, maybe he was going for a little more realism. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Or maybe because it was so, like, because the circus thing is such a light thing, like a lighthearted kind of thing, he wanted it to be grittier looking. Or, I don't know. But I thought it was interesting, too, that uh, Woody Strode was called Thomas, just like Brock Peters in the, in the last movie. It's like, couldn't they come up with different names? <laughs> yeah. Thomas and Joe, and then uh, maybe it was supposed to be the same guy because they were both like acrobatic performers, right? Like I maybe, know. I mean, because he did have he did have a tightrope act in the first one, yeah, uh, or in the last one, and like with this one, it was more you know uh, acrobatic, you know, like trapeze stuff, which again impressive that they did their own stunts with that as well, yeah, including the blindfold uh, part. Like, I think that's something that got overlooked with everything else that was going on in the film. These guys were doing their own acrobatics, and they weren't using stunt doubles. And also not using nets, which would have really helped Joe. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, it's funny, just to get to that scene again, there was something I forgot to mention, that right after Joe is killed and they do all the cutting back and forth 15 times, they cut to a scorpion that crawls through, and I think it was another bug there too, that's crawling through the blood. I'm not sure what kind mm -hmm. of a metaphor that, that was meant to be, but it, lo it looked cool. I think that was like they happened to see a, uh, a scorpion and they're like, oh, let's follow this. And like, because the scorpion just went into like a little crevice and they were just like, okay. <laughs> like the other thing was definitely staged with the, the bug with blood dripping. It looked like a carpenter ant. Yeah. Like I wasn't, like overly impressed with that or you know kind of not really sure what's what's going on like what the deal is because it's like yeah he's hurt we know he's hurt we know he's still bleeding but right here's a random scorpion <laughs> like if you had shown like buzzards circling overhead for the same amount of time that would have been a little more impactful right you know it's cliche but it would have been more impactful yeah that's uh, true as opposed to just showing a scorpion walk by it's like it might as well as it might as well have been a stage hand like oh it's just here's some random thing walking by oh look a gopher like <laughs> like i i like I is know. it supposed to signify that he's in danger like right i see his water <laughs> boiling over but he still has the wherewithal to, you know, get ready and, you know, know that somebody's coming, uh, coming for him or towards him. You know, I still haven't recovered from daylight savings time. Government's stealing my, my sleep from me. No, oh, no kidding. Me I too. Sleep. <laughs> I know I'm yawning uh, myself. I know I keep yawning and it's, it's driving me nuts because I'm like trying to make these good points. I'm like, this movie's so good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the scorpion part was so boring. That's why I'm yawning. No, like, it, it makes sense, you know, like, you, you're trying to show, like, it's like, yeah, you know, this is how badass this guy is. Like, he's, you know, seems like he's inches from death, but he's still got the wherewithal to, uh, 
hear someone coming up into his his personal space there, and he's up and ready to defend himself. Right. Um, even though he's like, oh, there's a guy there. Let me shoot. And you missed by like 12 feet because he was up on the ridge and you shot like, you know, towards the bottom of the wall where he was. So it's like that, you know, that wouldn't have helped you all that yeah. much. <laughs> but good effort. Right. <laughs> right. I liked when when Cat was taking uh, Thomas to, to see Hutch, and Thomas goes, "Is he a relative of yours?" And Cat goes, "No worse, a friend." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the back and forth, like, "Oh, isn't that your kid?" Like, yeah. you know, what's going on? Like, it's like, no, he's just a deaf mute that I hang out with. It's like, what? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was great too in that fight scene when. Uh, Cat and Baby Doll jump into the cart to get out of the burning building, and he's screaming at him, "Break the brake!" And of course, the guy's deaf, so he doesn't hear him, and they crash. And then at at the later bar fight, or you know, shortly thereafter, uh, all of a sudden he hollers something to Baby Doll, and he hears it and does whatever it was that he told him to do in the middle of the fight. And he's like, "I thought you were deaf." He's like, "Huh? Must have gone away in all the confusion." <laughs> yeah, it's like, what? <laughs> like that's not how that works right that's you know it's like in uh robin hood men in tights when uh blinken falls out of the the lookout tower and he's like i can see like yeah and he just like runs face first into a tree yeah. nope i was wrong <laughs> like you know it's definitely like a, it's supposed to be played off as a joke and like that's a lot that's a, a prime example of comedy that was attempted that fell flat Right, right. It's like they probably just got tired of having to be deaf mute, and they they wanted him to just just get on with things. Yeah, I mean, good effort. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, what was up with the dude? Speaking of um, the dude that looked like Mike Myers, he was one of the circus guys, and then he was running the hotel for a while there, and he had a mustache, but didn't it look just like Mike Myers? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, they kept you know bouncing back and forth. Between, like, when the circus disbanded, like, they all had to go get real jobs. And, like, yeah, it seemed like that one dancer, the one that, uh, what's his name, liked, was a, uh, a prostitute now. It's like, yeah. you've been unemployed for, like, 20 minutes, and all of a sudden you're a hooker. Right. <laughs> and she's like, I'll be back to finish later, much <laughs> later. And just, like, leaves. And the guy's just like, I'm just laying here. Right. <laughs> I don't know. That was a weird. That was a weird part. That was the whole movie was kind of weird, but in a fun sort of way. Yeah, the opening scene. I still can't get over that. Like, oh, there's a circus going on. Then, like, here's a poker game, and there's a bag full of, I don't know, was this sand, gold dust? Like, right? Why would you just and dump if it, it was on the full table? of gold dust? Why would you be pouring it out all over the table? Like, what's wrong <laughs> with you? Like, what is going on with this? And then, like, everybody starts dancing with like dead looks on their face yeah. like, what is this the mask of the red death what just happened here <laughs> the two dudes and then, like every now and then you'd see like a couple people that are like i'm having a great time and it's like everybody else just has like these blank dead stares on their face and it's like what am i watching yeah what the hell is happening and then you see Terrence Hill, like, trying to sneak away, and, like, somebody kills his horse. Like, I couldn't tell if it was, like, a, a whip or a, or a gunshot. Yeah, I and, thought like, it was a gunshot. He dives through one window and, like, dives out the next window. It's like, <laughs> wow, we are really leaning into the cliches in this. Like, and, like, what the two old happening? people are sitting in bed. 
He's just like tips it's like his the hat first jumps five ten minutes of this movie is just like another movie that's like a fever dream, right? <laughs> it's like what is happening here? Oh man! But I'm I thought so the confused. the scene where the circus guys figured out to to have the miners stay on one side and the um the the bad guys basically to stay on the other side. I thought that mm-hmm. was really interesting how they did that. They set that up well, but there was the the song that the three girls were singing about put your hand under the chair. I kind of thought it was annoying and I think what made it more annoying for me was that I walked away from this movie with that song running through my head and I didn't want it to be there. <laughs> oh, see I didn't. I I as soon as it was over, I was like, "All right, not bad." Like, I'm, yeah, <laughs> um, I'm glad that you know there was some kind of resolution to this. Yeah, it's just funny how this movie had a lot to do with acrobats. It almost seems like that's why Kalitsi put that parade in the previous movie out of nowhere because he was building up towards doing a lot more circus kind of stuff. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that until you just said it, and it's like that kind of makes sense because again, like. You know, we we discussed this last time. It's like, this is so out of place. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this? Well, maybe this is why. Maybe it's because, you know, he had everything planned out from, you know, from the beginning. Because, I mean, this, it takes place, the second one takes place immediately following the events of the first. Yeah. You know, so that could have been one long film if he wanted it. Oh, yeah. And it just like you said, you know, it, it compares to the Venom movies, um, especially the last one we just watched just with the, you know, the acrobatic skills. And in this one, you know, the, the acrobats, once they went into action, they're like scaling the water tower and climbing the rooftops, hanging upside down into windows to shoot bad guys, you know. I thought they played that to their skills really well, just in the way the Venom mobs do it, the movies do it. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to kind of have both of them sort of put together. Yeah. You know, like the way we watch them, like, you know, one of them leads directly into the next one. Yeah, that was really cool. There was a lot of, like you said, when in discussing the, the shots and what they choose to show you, I think it was Cat and Finch face off and, you know, the typical gunfight duel and they shoot. And then it cuts to the barroom fight, and we never find out who won. I mean, obviously Cat won, but <laughs> it was just like, well, wait a minute. What about those guys? Yeah, it's like, hey, what happened here? No, it doesn't matter. Great. <laughs> not, not important. Same thing with Mammy. He gets shot in the back. Did he die? Did he live? We didn't see him in the end scene. Yeah, it's, it was weird. It was weird. There, there wasn't a lot of resolution at the ending. I mean, did Cat keep the deed to the mine? You know? <laughs> I mean, it's just like a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of different uh, plot points that just don't get resolved. You know, no big deal. Right. Like this is my driving force for the entire film. Oh, who won? Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> D- did it get resolved? Doesn't matter. It's too bad that you know Eli Wallach didn't come back in this one because when they left it at the end of the last movie, they all went off together. They don't even mention him in this movie, so. I mean, I guess, you know, back then, nobody really cared about continuity anyways. You get shot in the head, oh well, he he healed, you know. It's just a minor inconvenience, you know. Modern medicine back these days, you know, they probably just gave him some coke and some leeches and they were fine. Yeah. <laughs> your surgeon is also your barber. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> now, you know what's funny? And a lot of the um, synopses that I read, and the one you read too, it said that... Um, that scene where the miners are sitting in the tent on one side and the bad guys are on the other side, 
and the miners had guns under their chairs, and the bad guys had feathers, but the what I saw were um, noisemakers. Is feather just another word for a noisemaker, or? No, I think that you know maybe the the uh, maybe it was a uh, something that got lost in translation, you know, before it got translated over. Oh, maybe. Yeah, because it was those ones like you get at New Year's. It was like a specific word, like a slang. Yeah. Slang thing. Yeah. So, Patsy, final thoughts on Boot Hill, which, by the way, what was the connection to Boot Hill? I don't think there was any mention of Boot Hill. <laughs> no, but I... Whatever. I mean, <laughs> he didn't wrap up most of the major plot lines either. <laughs> like, um, but it sounds cool. Right. I liked it. Like I said, you know, there were some uh, inconsistencies. There were some, there were some issues with people trying to trying to be funny in situations that didn't call for it. Um, it was almost as jarring as you know what we talked about with Shell and Daredevils, where it's like this very sad, somber scene with the backdrop of like upbeat disco music, like. <laughs> It's like, oh, my dad was just killed, and my brother, and I need to avenge him. Do, 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 do. It's like, no. And, like, that's why, like, where some of the comedy came from, and or the attempted comedy, again. Right. Because comedy wasn't great. It was attempted. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes unintentional. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. It wasn't It wasn't terrible. I, I enjoyed it for what it was, and I would, I would definitely recommend the trilogy to people. Uh, even though it does get a little ridiculous and it's hard to keep the continuity straight. Right. Like, is Thomas the same character in the last two movies? Because he's definitely not the same actor. Right. <laughs> you know, is this circus the one that was preceded by the marching band in the last film? Or, I don't know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I agree, I agree. It is it is the weakest of the three, but it's it's surreal enough and entertaining enough that it's not... A terrible movie at all. No. Yeah, you know, like you said, it's got a lot of plot point issues that don't get resolved. But overall, I think if you're a completist, you know, you got to watch this trilogy. And I'm actually looking forward to the next trilogy of, uh, I almost said Cat and Hutch, of uh, Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer, which I think... I think they're called the Trinity Films, but I remember when I looked it up before, I, there was some issue with the titles because it's not actually the first one. I don't think it's called Trinity, but I think that's the name of the character that Terrence Hill plays. So I'm looking forward to checking out uh, those ones on the next go round. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to you know expanding my uh, my knowledge of westerns. Yeah, absolutely. So, Pat, can you tell the listeners where they can find you online? Uh, best place to find me is uh, probably throwdownthursdaypodcast.com, or uh, you can check out our Facebook groups, both uh, Throwdown Thursday Podcast and The Loudest Sports Show. Uh, with The Loudest Sports Show uh, Facebook group, we also do uh, memorabilia raffles to help support the podcast, and we are currently uh, raising money for the Strong-Willed Sports Memorabilia and more for their Pan Mass Challenge, where they're going to be riding 193 miles to help raise money to fight pediatric cancer. And nice. the Loudest Sports Show is proud to be sponsoring them. We'll have a patch on their riding jersey because we are donating some money to them. And we're going to be raffling off all kinds of good stuff. Uh, currently, we have a Bill Belichick-signed mini-helmet. We have a Magic Johnson jersey, and we're going to be doing tons and tons of fun stuff. We do NHL, NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, NBA, jerseys, basketballs, all kinds of good stuff, all signed and authenticated. 
so come on down try your luck and help help us uh raise some money for various causes because uh anything we can do to help especially to fight pediatric cancer uh, anything we can do to help is always a good thing so nice that's awesome that's so and, cool and you can find the podcasts on spotify Excellent, excellent. And folks, don't forget, The East Meets the West is also part of the Dorkening Podcast Network. So uh, don't forget to check out uh, check us out there as well as the other great shows at thedorkening.com. Uh, so if you want to send us your thoughts on today's episodes, you can email us at theeastmeetsthewest42 at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you can also find our sister show, Then Is Now, in which we discuss all the cool stuff that you may have missed out on and stuff that you should know about. And please go to wherever you download podcasts and leave us a great review so that more people can find the show. Um, you can also check us out. Uh, the East Meets the West podcast is on YouTube at youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1. And you can find all our podcasts there, plus other fun stuff. And be sure to hit the subscribe button, and, and please share it with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. That is all the time we have today. So join us again on our next episode of The East Meets the West. is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. All clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders. All other material is copyright Jupiter Media. like the one you just heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com